one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. That's the second time it's gone off. Never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. That's... Yeah, <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm the World Cup. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. It's the Irish Times second captain's football podcast with Owen McDevitt and Kieran Murphy. Hello there, all. But without Ken Early, who will be back from his holidays on Monday. If you listen regularly to the podcast, you'll be very familiar at this age with Ken's thought, thoughts on Brendan Rogers. Not exactly a Rogers disciple. <laughs> And I'm guessing... I haven't been sitting on the fence on this one. Yeah, I'm guessing not even a hard fought come from behind 2-1 FA Cup fourth round replay victory over Bolton Wanderers would be enough to convert Ken. But it is a positive result to take into Saturday's Merseyside derby and that's a game we're going to be discussing with one of our favourite guests, former Republic of Ireland manager Brian Kerr is going to pop mm. in the studio. And they've been having quite a few positive results over the last uh, couple of weeks, getting back on track. So yes. Yeah, well it's a fixture that held a special place in my heart, the Merseyside derby that is, not the Bolton-Liverpool fixture. Uh, since the famous four-all draw in the FA Cup game in 1991. You remember this one? I do, I do. Uh, Peter Beardsley scored twice. Mm-hmm. Tony Cotty Tony scored twice. Graham Sharp scored twice. Love you. There you go. Yeah. Uh, and... Uh, Kenny Dalglish lost his job. Kenny Dalglish lost his job, or well, quit shortly afterwards. But the reason sticks in my mind is the slightly surreal manner of its broadcast. I don't know if this applied at Westmurf, but certainly in Dublin around that time, yeah, one of the TV stations on offer from Cable Link was there. You go, Cable Link was a sort of <laughs> multi-screen job showcasing okay. all of its possibly thirteen stations. Right. Yeah. So if you try and picture this, you'd have one station taking up the bulk of the screen yeah. space in the middle. Yeah. Maybe eighty percent of the screen space. Yeah. Even more with all the other all the others broadcast in little boxes around the inner perimeter okay okay yeah on this particular night the good people so you could see all these different things that, that, that were going on on each yeah. station on this particular night the good people at Cablelink were nice enough to put the Sky Channel okay. the precursor to Sky 1 yeah, yeah. front and centre and that was showing the match ah right no because I no, we didn't have uh, we were working off a deflector system ah. uh, Owen, which meant that the beam from the BBC was broadcast from the north of Ireland uh, gathered up somewhere in the middle of Ireland, then uh, brought over from there to Ballyhonas, County Mayo, and then deflected from there <laughs> to your TV area. So every once in a while, some lad would knock on the door and say, how are you getting on? I'm here from the deflector in Ballyhonas. He wouldn't give us a few old quid. And you'd hand a few quid over. And I'd, I'm, I'm probably... I'm, really? Yeah, I'm talking about something... Probably illegal. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think I, th- I could, there's a statute of limitations on deflector crimes, I'm sure. sure. Um, but yeah, that, that was basically our, our TV system. So we had all six channels, but not anything of that nature. Now, my cousin did have Sky, but... Scrambled. Scrambled. Yeah, yeah. I, I had that as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Which I had is, Sky scrambled a lot of the time. And was the pre-match, How- was the pre-match shown... Like in screen, and then as the yes, game was started, that, they would scramble. That the would visuals. often happen, yeah. yeah but sometimes they scramble the visuals, but leave the audio. Yeah, that yeah, that was it. Yeah, they yeah, would scramble yeah. the visual, but leave the audio, and then just but to the, all the pregame stuff would you mm. in vision and in audio. You'd yeah, see, you'd some of the time, lot. yeah, yeah, amazing, just different worlds. Yeah, East, yeah East and it's West. a different world back then, you know. The two teams played Goodison at five thirty on Saturday. We're going to hear Brian Kerr's thoughts on the rival between the clubs, and we're going to keep him in for a piece with Daniel Taylor. 
on a long-forgotten Manchester United footballer, a young lad called Adrian Doherty from Tyrone. He was in the youth teams in the Ryan Giggs era, was seen as being at least the equal of Giggs by a lot of people. And I know this is the kind of thing you do hear a lot uh, when uh, if there's a myth grows up around a certain mm. player or a mythology, but Daniel stands that opinion up. He talks to a lot of people, including Brendan Rodgers, who played with, uh, with Doherty around this time and says he was just absolutely unbelievable. In the piece, Rogers says, if you ask Giggs and those guys, they'll tell you how great this player was. Uh, didn't, unfortunately, his career uh, didn't end well, and he died very young as well, Adrian Doherty, but we'll talk about him with Daniel Taylor today. Daniel was writing about him late last year. Not a good week for Sky Sports News. First the realisation hits on the transfer deadline day. Isn't much crack without the supporters waving sex toys around and shoving them in the ears of the reporters. We just didn't know what we had. And you now- know, we didn't know the TV magic... <laughs> That we had in front of us, huh? And now Harry Redknapp, uh, their go-to guy, is mm. out of a job. We'll talk to Dion about Harry and QPR. Someday on, 40 years from now, me and you will be fronting a documentary about the golden days of the Sky Sports News <laughs> transfer deadline day. Of course, we all loved it back then. Oh, we'd take the day off work and <laughs> sit in front of it and watch it for 15 hours. No, we didn't. Stop lying in documentaries, everyone. <laughs> yeah, talking heads. Yeah, you stop, stop lying. It. Yeah, Terry Christian gets handed something. You're just basically reading it from a sheet of A4 held beside the camera. Yeah, we know what goes on. And just a quick mention of Borussia Dortmund. They're stuck to the bottom of the Bundesliga. And this just isn't funny anymore for their fans. We're into February. It looks like one of the top clubs in Europe is going to be relegated. And they they are. They were Champions League finalists. In the second last Champions League final played, they lost to a last minute Aryan Robin goal. I mean, that's, it's incredible they would be relegated that soon. Amazing scenes after their defeat to Augsburg last night. Joey Barton tweeted a video in which... I was just stunning. If you haven't watched it, I, I, I retweeted it at one stage last night. Roman, or just follow Joey Barton. Which you're probably, If you're following me, you're almost certainly following Joey Barton. So just have a look at his Twitter feed. But their goalkeeper... So the game ends and the, the video just picks it up after the end of the game. You see the keeper, Roman Weidenfeller, walking towards the supporters who are seething, absolutely mm. seething. Presumably it's the big ter- famous terrace they have behind yeah. the goal. Uh, they're try- almost clambering over the fence trying to berate their players. Uh, Weidenfeller is walking towards the supporters with an arms out uh, gesture as if to say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, mm. we're trying our best. Walks towards him, climbs up on top of the fence to uh, try to... Ch- Cam situate the situation down a little bit. Mats Hummels also comes over, is talking to the supporters. The camera pans to Jurgen Klopp and uh, some of the substitutes, some of the the players, and Kl- they're just crestfallen. It's all, it's it's seriously like somebody has died. I mean, that's yeah. it's or, or um, it's like somebody has died after a massive riot. It's just there's so many different emotions contained within this sort of forty five yeah. seconds, as opposed to it just being a football game that's ended. Yeah, a lot of melodrama. There, I actually watched five minutes of that game and I flicked over and saw the score and I was like, oh my God, they're losing again. This is getting ridiculous. I mean, it is insane that they were came so close to winning the Champions League. And I mean, it, many, people talk about Man United. They won the European Cup in 1968 and then just seven short years later, <laughs> they're relegated. I mean, this is another level entirely. Brian Kerr has popped into us. Brian, good to see you. I hope you're well. Yeah, I am. I'm great. Yeah, very good. We wanted to ask you a little bit about the Merseyside Derby uh, and the sort of place that it holds in... English football. Have you have you been to many over the years? I think I was at one um, maybe in t- two thousand four. I think Liverpool beat Everton two one February two thousand four. Uh, not been at too many of them. Uh, obviously, I think that was it. may have been the only one I was actually at. But you know, I'd be well aware of the importance of it. And it's an unusual derby in that there's maybe less of the the, the vision, viciousness and. Uh, the vitriol that you get at some of the other derbies where where teams historically have had a rivalry because of maybe for social reasons, political reasons, geographical reasons, the movement of players, movement of managers between clubs. There, there's generally a lack of that at the Everton-Liverpool game, which I think is a good thing. Yeah, the game is on at half five on a Saturday evening, for example. Now, the Merseyside police actually aren't too happy with that because they, they said they will need to put some extra police on and put some more resources into it being that late in the day but it's just it's unimaginable that an old firm derby or many of the other derbies around the world could take place at that sort of time when there's so much room for 
people to get a few drinks on board beforehand. Yeah, but you know, in in Liverpool, it's not unusual for members of the same family to 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 follow uh, either of the clubs and to go to the match together. And that's was something that impressed me when I was there, when I was actually at the game, seeing people sitting beside sitting beside each other, uh, one dressed in red, one dressed in blue, and. I think it's 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 probably the only one of the really big derbies where you don't have uh, full segregation of the supporters in the ground, and you know there's an awful lot to be said for that. I think there was a time when the the rivalry became um, the, there was a tension in it after um, after the Heysel incident where Liverpool. Where, where the ban on the English teams meant that Everton missed out on the opportunities to play in the Champions League and play in Europe and they had that very good spell and they won the league a couple of times and won the cup um, you know and it, it's it's been a long time since they've had that type of spell but I think you, you know since Hillsborough and a, f- a couple of other incidents where the young supporter was, was killed a couple of years ago in a, a stabbing incident I think there's been a lot of goodwill between the clubs uh, there's always been respect I think, and an ability to laugh at some of the situations. I suppose the dominance of Liverpool uh, at times would be very frustrating for for Everton supporters. And, um, you know, they had a little spell recently where they actually finished ahead of Liverpool, but a bit down the table, really, you know. But um, I I think the situation now, again, where you've got, Liverpool in the ascendancy, Everton not doing so well. It makes for a very interesting uh, game again, where Everton badly need to get some points to get away from the, the 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 bottom regions of the table, and Liverpool need them to keep the momentum going of their attempts to back into the top four. Yeah, and they have got a bit of momentum. They came through their cup replay last night against Bolton with a late comeback, which is maybe indicative of their mindset at the moment because it seemed that from the moment Stephen Gerrard slipped last year against Chelsea right through the summer and into the early part of this season something had gone wrong it looked as though psychologically they just weren't well clearly what had gone wrong was they didn't have Luis Suarez anymore but psychologically maybe they weren't in the same place they had been last season and I guess Liverpool fans might have been worried that that might be irreversible under Brendan Rodgers but they seem to have shown a bit of steel amongst the silky football in the last month or so yeah and I think steel is a good word I think they've been a lot more solid in defence um, earlier in the season they they were all over the place at times they were playing before for the back the goalkeeper Mignolet was having a hard time I think the change recently I'm putting can Chan uh, pronunciation of his name seems to vary with whoever, whoever calls <laughs> it not just with, 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 my, with, with my pronunciation but his move into a, a central back three with uh, with, with, with Skirtle and at times with Toure, now more with Sacco, has has improved things fairly dramatically. Uh, Marino uh, has, has become a regular at left back. Not sure about Markovic and the, the right wing back position as a as a as a, as a wing back. I don't think it necessarily suits him. But I think that's been the key to it. Lucas's form and his recovery from injury has given them uh, again a bit of a screen in front of the uh, in front of the of that back three, back five, whatever it is at, at times in the game. And the combinations after that, Sterling's form has improved. Now they've got storage. That's been a big boost, I think, morale-wise and his um, his immediate return to form with a goal as weekend, important second goal in the game. Uh, you know, the, it, it's starting to look a bit rosier for them. But I think if you look back on the season, you'd say their problems stemmed from what happened in the summer. Not just Suarez departing, but the lack of the proper replacements, the, the the fact that Balotelli hasn't worked out, Lambert was always um, going to be a kind of a, a bit player who unfortunately has been very small bits uh, in his contribution. Lalana slow to get going, but big improvement now. And I think everyone would have everyone would have said Lalana is going to be a bit player for them, but he's taken time with that. But more importantly, Lovren, who most commentators and I would have been one of them was very impressed with last year at Southampton hasn't done his stuff and has struggled in that combination with Skirtle and as a back four and a, you know in a team any team you're looking at the unit of the back four with the goalkeeper as being the, the, the most important area team you need to be on top of midfield 
to have have possession in games and feed the front players and score goals. But if the back bit of it isn't right, your team is, I'd always say, your team is in rag order if the back bit is not right. Mm. Uh, regular listeners to this show know that Ken Early is not much of a fan of Brendan Rodgers, believes there's an element of you know, bullshit to... Spoof and spin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm quoting Ken, not yeah, myself. Yeah. Well, what, what do you think? What do you think of, of Rodgers? Um, I, I, I've, I've felt in the last couple of years, and I, you know, maybe he's forced into... I always talk... I think he, talk, he talks too much about what he's doing and what the process is and where Liverpool are at. And uh, he makes it sound as if it's... Um, uh, 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 there, there, there's a chemical process that that he has he has the the formula for. Yeah, he's got and the white that, coat on, and he has. It reminds me of my days in the lab, my own days, but I never quite had the formula <laughs> right. But he 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 reminds that that he, I kind of associate him that he has this formula, and he's he's dropping in the liquids bit by bit, <laughs> and the, he's almost got this perfect uh, chemical homogeneous solution to, yeah. the, to, to the problems of Liverpool and that he's getting there and then suddenly this year it's all gone astray it, it, in fact it's, it's, it's turned out to be bad beer and it's not working and now he, but he hasn't admitted that he's gone back to the process and the philosophy and all this stuff but now he, he's getting but I, I think he's done a really really good job when you look at where Liverpool were you know, when Roy Hudson was brought in, Kenny Dalglish's last spell of it, it's been, it's been quite messy. And um, I think he's he's done a very good job. And I don't see any reason why, why people would have suggested he's under pressure because they're not matching where they were second last year. I think he's hindered by this transfer committee. I don't think... That doesn't do him any favours whatsoever. And that came about as a result of the splurges by Kenny Dalglish on players who didn't do it and, became, and were bad value. And he's been hindered by that. That, it's, that is a process. And the committee sorting it out, it, it, it doesn't really work. You're ending up justifying your knowledge of the game, your good feeling for players, your eye for value your eye for your judgment on what you need to improve the team you're working with. It's very hard to explain that to other people that, in a sense, know absolutely nothing about the game. And in fairness to Rogers, unlike other managers, he actually probably treats journalists with a bit more respect. He tries to explain these things, maybe, and, and uh, it doesn't always get the, the praise, I don't know if praise is the right word for that, but get the acknowledgement. Stephen Hunt, interestingly, was writing about him. He had he was played under him for a brief while, would, would have been at Reading, Reading I guess, yeah, yeah. yeah. And he was very warm about him. He said that, it's funny, the press conferences he sees now, and the interviews he sees now of, uh, of that Brendan Rodgers conducts, he actually might have used the word bullshit himself. He, he said that that's the way he comes across isn't the way he is behind the scenes. He said behind the scenes, he's really straight talking, really good with players. He was very good to Stephen, who was being moved on, but yet there was none of the callousness that sometimes a manager can treat a player like that with. I was, I was quite struck by that, that maybe there's a different private... We have to separate how Brendan Rodgers performs in interviews in front of the media to what he actually does with the players behind the scenes. Well, you know, the way it works for managers at press conference, with the majority of managers, I'm not saying I wouldn't put Van Hal in this category, but the majority of managers are trying to talk a lot and say very little and give a few snippets to the media um, that will give them give them a line to hang a programme on or hang a headline on. you know, that, And that's how it works. But the rest of the time, they don't want to give much away. They don't want to tell the media, say, why are you not playing that player? They're not going to say, because he's, he's fairly crap at the moment <laughs> and he hasn't been playing well and he's been brutal in the training ground. They'll say, well, I've got other players in the, in, the, in the squad who can play in that position and I'm using them at the moment. They won't usually say very direct things so it's a difficult one when you're having to do it three or four or five times a week which uh, Brendan Rodgers generally has to because they're involved in so many competitions Champions League this year Europa League be coming up now League Cup FA Cup League every week they want to hear what he has to say Marino has gone missing at the moment so his his one's Pellegrini his grasp of English is, is, is bad enough that he can just get away with saying nothing 
Okay. Although he speaks words, you would come out the content of that was nothing very much <laughs> all the time. Whereas he, you know, I think Rogers tries to explain things, tries to answer questions properly, and he is a genuinely very nice fella. I'm not surprised at what, what uh, Stephen Hunt had to say about him. I'd say most players would find him a good, good guy to deal with. Very quick prediction on this Merseyside derby. I can't see everything getting... I, I, everything not in great shape at the moment at all, but if they lose this one, they're, they're almost back in the mire with the rest, you know? So I've, I, I see them getting... So I don't think Liverpool are good enough to, at the moment to, to beat them. I think it'll be a draw. All right, Brian, stay with us because it would be uh, very interesting. I think you'll be interested in uh, this next story. It's about uh, a young lad called Adrian Doherty. Well, he was a young lad from Tyrone in the early 1990s. He was part of the Manchester United youth teams then until his career ended before it began, really, with the cruciate injury. The, the reason we're talking about this is that Daniel Taylor wrote a piece about him for The Guardian late last year, and we haven't had a chance, really, to, to catch up with Daniel about this. It's an extraordinary story. Daniel, you, you wrote this piece around the time of the Class of 92 documentary when that was released. Had you heard much about Adrian Doherty over the years before that, or were you just looking for a new angle and you, you came across the story? No, I've heard uh, extremely little about him, to be honest. And I think, um, judging by the response, certainly over, over here in England, I, I think that was, the, that was the sort of common... Uh, thing really, even among Manchester United supporters, you know, who, who've you know covered, who followed the club in that era, among the journalists, um, you know, who were around it in the early nineties, you know, have covered the club, over, you know, everything that's happened since, you know, it, it, it really, it's an amazing story, and part of the reason I think it's an amazing story is that, is that, is that it was so so untold, you know, it's it, there, there was so little coverage about this guy and, and what had happened. And obviously the, the tragic consequences that um, we'll come on to in a minute. Yeah, we'll get to that. Can you maybe outline, first of all, once you did start digging, what you found out about how good uh, a player this guy was, how, the, how big a prospect he was meant to be? Well, it came from nothing as simple as a, a, a neighbour of mine used to play in the, for the Manchester United youth team. And I just went out for a drink one day and he started telling me about this lad and he... And, he, you know, when he can see a footballer and his sort of eyes, you know, widen and he's basically telling me about someone, you know, I, I'm used to seeing people talking about gigs like that in terms of the old uh, U-team players at United. And, and this, this, so this guy, you know, I went for a drink with him and he was basically saying this guy, you know, he was insisting this, this lad, Adrian Doherty, who I, who I must admit I'd never heard of, was, his, was, it, was the equal of gigs. And if I spoke to anyone of that era, they would say the same. And I kind of, you know, didn't really laugh it off, but it stayed with me. And then started making some inquiries and everything he said you know every, every single person I spoke to said exactly the same um, it, I mean at that time right, Brian Giggs was Ryan Wilson but all the, all the coaches of the time said basically that they, they were on a level pegging um, I mean there's a guy who wrote a, a, a youth team a, a book on the youth team players at Manchester United who, who is who's regard, Tony Park who's regarded here as a kind of absolute authority on the subject and he, and he's he said there were, there were four certainties he's ever seen in, in 30 years or so of watching the youth team. One of them was Norman Whiteside, the other one was Ryan Wilson, obviously Ryan Giggs. Um, the other one was Paul Scholes and the other one was Adrian Doherty. And as I say, Adrian Doherty is a name that is just, you know, the other three are just household names. Adrian Doherty, you know, very few people know about this kid. Yeah, and he was seen as somebody, I guess, with the complete package for a winger, in, 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 to two-footed, quick, brave, all those kind of things. And, and was picked by Alex Ferguson, age 16, for a first-team squad? Yeah, um, I mean, Brian Clough wanted to sign him for Nottingham Forest. That was obviously when Nottingham Forest were, you know, a very good team. Um, Alex, I think he was picked in for the um, for Northern Ireland under-21 at 17, I think I think Alex Ferguson actually withdrew him. Um, he he was due to make his debut actually ahead of gigs, um, and you know I mean it, it was in an era where, you know there wasn't social media and there wasn't the hype that you get that you get these days. You know if there's a kid in Man United's youth team now who's you know who, who everyone is raving about, every you know everyone will know that within years. You know uh, the hype surrounding players these days is very different to to what it was back then. You know without the kind of Twitter of, and you know internet. Um, <laughs> world that we live in now so um so at that time i suppose he was a bit of a hidden secret but i mean the players as i say every single player i've, I've spoken to um just talked about him um, i mean there's a quote from tony parks where he says imagine a bit of gigs imagine a bit of andrew kanchelskis and a bit of cristiano ronaldo then put it all together that was adrian dotty he had everything um you know and I, I know tony he's not a guy who's prone to exaggeration right so you know and as i say the, the coaches have told me the same 
you know the same sort of praise and um, it, unfortunately, you know, it just it just didn't work out. As we'll, we'll come on to in a sec, but Lar- I mean, largely because of injury, is that right? Yeah, I mean, basically, um, he, um, I mean, the injury that every footballer I think fears the most. He got the cruciate knee ligaments. Um, uh, they went, and basically, that was in an era where, you know, that, that I mean, now, nowadays that delays careers. You know, in those days, it destroyed careers. Really, um, you know, he did come back. Yeah, I think he had something like you know near the best part of a year out. He did come back. He made a, he made one comeback game. Um, then then the same happened again, or his knee went again. You know he did he did he did um, again sort of you know was put on that long road to recovery and um, came back again, but it was just obviously never the same player. Um, you know he had a lot of, you know a lot of time out of football, and I think. He wasn't the classic footballer by any means. If you look into his personality, you know he wasn't he, he wasn't interested in cars and you know haircuts and going out in Manchester. And, you know that was that was a great time in Manchester. You know it was all the kind of hacienda scene and everything. You know he he was he was he, he was I wouldn't say a loner, but he was almost he's been described to me in football terms slightly eccentric. You know he would he sort of would come in in a baggy jumper, you know, with a guitar over his shoulder and. I think you know. I think he, he might have had some lonely times in that in that couple of years when he was living in Manchester and obviously sort of trying to come back from a long injury, watching his old teammates sort of you know move ahead with their careers very quickly. Yeah, you can only imagine. Uh, well, it's, it's human instinct to be incredibly envious of these people, of Ryan Giggs and others. You say in the article, his father Jimmy has always thought United should have done more to care for his son during and after that long rehabilitation. Oh, do, do you have any more detail on that and what he feels should have been done? Not hugely. There, there is a book coming out about Adrian in, in, in the next year or so. Where I believe there'll be there'll be more on that in there. Um, I mean, it's a tough one because in these days, young footballers would have a lot more people around them. You know, there'll be people making sure that he's. I mean, when I, when I talk about him being slightly eccentric, you know, he, he would write poems and things like that. And I know, you know, in, in the in the kind of football dressing room, you know, that sort of that does separate you a, a touch. And you know, he as I say, he was he was seen as this really lovely kid, and really everyone sort of said, you know, he was always smiling and always sort of extremely sort of amiable, but but maybe slightly different and slightly detached from the, from the group. And I think he just obviously, you know, he had an awful long time, basically trying to get back fit. And he's a you know a young shy kid um, from Ireland who's you know in Manchester. You know I wasn't there. I don't know his personality. I couldn't I couldn't tell you exactly what was happening with him. But I know his his fam his family feel that United could have done more in that time to to help him to support him to sort of um, you know to sort of guide him through what was obviously a very difficult time. What happened? Uh, what did he do with his post football life? Then this is a, a very young man who finished has to finish his career very early. Unfortunately, with uh, without the success and the riches that come with that, what actually um, did did he meander a small bit? Yeah, he did. Um, I mean, I described it in my article. He became a bit of a lost soul. He he um, he drifted a little bit. He went to work in a chocolate factory in Preston. Um, he went back to Derry, and I think he made a few appearances. I think two or three appearances for Derry City, where his dad was actually on the books once. Um, but obviously, you know, it's not the same player. I'm not sure, sure his heart was in it any longer. And he sort of left, left football. He moved to Holland um, in. Let me just get this right. This April 2000. And that was, I mean, just as a sort of cruel coincidence, that was the time that, you know, a lot of his old teammates were sealing another league title. You know, it was a six in eight seasons, I think it was. And um, he started to work for a furniture company in The Hague. And then, you know, we come to the kind of tragic element of it. Basically, the day before he turned 27, he was on his way to get a train to work in the morning. And um, um, he, he, he slipped into, a, into the canal and went into And basically, when he was pulled out, he went into a coma. He, he died the day before his 27th birthday. Nice. It wasn't the tw- day before. He had a few weeks in hospital. And um, so, obviously, you know, he tried to start a new life and away from football. And unfortunately, there's a, there's a horrible ending to this story. Yeah. Was there any sort of uh, reaction to that? Was this reported in the UK? Was Did Manchester United have anything... Uh, uh, when I looked through all the archives and all the files and everything, this, this um, I mean, it sounds cold and harsh, but football is such a 
fast-moving juggernaut, I suppose. There was all I found was I found a page in a page lead in the Derry Journal, and in the English papers, hardly a thing really. You know, a few lines in the Sunday Mirror. Um, I mean, it was the day before, as I say, I know this sounds harsh, it was the day before England played Germany in Euro 2000, ironically, with, you know, some of his old teammates in the team, and I suppose the newspapers, you know, were fixated on that, and really, Adrian Doherty's story, you know, which could have been an incredible story, you know, by by the sounds of what everyone had to say, Alex Ferguson included, it, it, seemed, it seemed to have been forgotten about in the... Um, within the football world so it, it got very very little coverage really Yeah well it's nice to hear there's a, a book in the pipeline we look forward to that and uh, it was a really good article Daniel great to catch up with you and chat about that thanks a million No problem Yeah really sad stuff Brian this uh, I'm, I'm not necessarily surprised that football forgot about this guy because it, it wasn't as though he had become a name even within it, it, it's one of those I guess he would have been one of those names it sounds like that sort of whispered in the background and maybe there's a, the people in the know would remember him but he never played for the first team he never really had a career it does show how quickly football moves on from anything though really if, if this guy wasn't if the story of this person hadn't really been reported until Daniel Taylor talked about it yeah, well I, I can't say I knew him I think I, I remember his short spell at Derry I can't see him as the player I don't think he played against uh, against a team I had at the time but um, it is a tragic story the tragic end but you know I think what's really significant is that he got so little help with his future after finishing in professional football and that he was drifting drifting down the ranks. And that's the case with a lot of players. And just before I come in today, I decided to have a little look back at a team that won the European Championship as under they were actually under seventy at the time for Ireland in ninety eight to see where most of them are now. Because I'd know in my head, but you know, they were I think at the time many people would have uh, thought that these guys would be the ones who were going to end up as stars, as big stars as well. And interestingly, out of the out of the group, six of them actually were capped at full international level. There's seven of them. Now, we're going back to 1998 here, so it's 16 years on. Seven of them are actually playing regular first-team football uh, professionally at the moment. If you take Joe Murphy uh, at Huddersfield, John O'Shea at Sunderland, Jim Goodwin, player-manager or assistant manager at, at St Mirren. Liam Miller's just come back from Cork from Australia, has had a great career. Uh, Andy Reid, out injured at the moment with, with Knott's Forest. Uh, Jonathan Douglas, who only played in one of those games as sub in Scotland, he's had a fantastic career. Again, crap, um, capped by Trapattoni, uh, or Staunton, I think, at the start by Trapattoni. And Jonathan Douglas still playing away with Brentford near the top of the championship. So, you know, John Thompson had an interesting career as well, had to give up a few years ago. But more interestingly, I think of the guys who didn't make it as players. Yep. And one of them, not comparison to, to Adrian's uh, finish, was Sean Bourne, who I would have banked on being a, a very good player to play the top level. And I'm, I was always a bit reticent to say that will happen because it's, a, it's, a, it, it's not an exact science. There's no formula for this one. There's no chemical formula that says he yeah. is going to be that player. But Sean, I installed him as captain. He came into the group late. I just thought he had a, a, so many really fine qualities. He had leadership, he had ability on the ball, he had a shot, he was strong, he could head it, he could tackle, he could pass, he could run. And yet, he was one of the first to drift out of uh, football. He was at West Ham for a good few years, probably for too long. Never really got a chance to go on the first team. Last game I saw him playing was at Swansea, near the bottom of Division 4, before Swansea's rise to the top. Yeah. Brian Murphy was playing in goal, a goalkeeper. Oh, yeah. Leon Britton was playing the yeah. same game. Um, it was at Macclesfield, I think. And, you know, Sean ended up here playing a little bit with Home Farm, Fingal for a spell or, or Dublin City rather and he's he, he's playing I met him not so long ago and he, he's still playing on the second team in the Vauxhall Conference because he doesn't want to play in the midweek matches away and he's a great guy in good shape but he was one of the ones some of the others drifted out as well but they've all done relatively well some of them are uh, I think of Liam George who wasn't that group another group he's a full time physio people often ask me about him Dave McMahon who was the centre forward scored one of the goals in the final he's a physio up around Newcastle 
Newcastle. Graham Barrett is working as an agent now. Uh, Desi Bourne's working as an agent. And and plenty of them are still around football, but they've all done all right in life. Do you? you know? Yeah, which is the most we, important which, thing. But, but the key thing on that is the majority of them were still here to do their leaving cert before they went yeah. to England after that tournament. And that's really the key question. It's It's what happens to the guys who don't make it after they don't make it, if you know what I mean. And I shouldn't say don't make it. In some of those cases, they've had respectable uh, football careers. But if it doesn't... But there's a lot it, more of them don't have not, yeah, respectable I mean, the, 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 football The Robbie Keane, Damien Duff thing is a freak, it really. Yeah, it's and Richard Dunn, and, and Steve McPhail. So it's a freak that a few of them managed to... And they, you know, they, they, there were so many that had great careers. Yeah, is there any advice? Is there any, is there any way... Do you cringe, for example, at, uh, when lads are 16, even earlier, you know, 13, 14, 15, and... Everybody's telling them how great they're going to be. He's a sure thing. He's a sure thing. This guy's I, the next I, George Best. I cringe Best, at the celebration when a young fella starts going on trials to England at 13, 14, and sometimes younger. They're going, they're, I don't think they call it trials anymore. They bring them over to have a look around. And uh, I, I, I cringe at the celebration when they get a contract at 16 and even when it's a very very good contract which is very hard to resist I understand that but I, I you know I, I hear people whispering on sidelines and saying this lad is City are tracking him and he might be going to City he might be going to Chelsea and I'm going God what chance is he of getting in to the team ever at Chelsea but if the educational side is provided seriously then they have done a good job. But I don't think they do that very good job because they get lost in this this unreal bubble of professional football where everything is done for them and they think they're going to be a star. They think the wages are going to last forever and they're never really going to have to work hard for a day in their life yeah, to make no, a living. And, yeah, you know, if I just go back to the educational one, I always say that very few of these lads have ever gone through the trauma of having to have your Irish comp composition done for a Monday morning in school or your English composition the trauma of that on a Sunday night when you've spent the weekend going to football playing football being involved in sport and that discipline of that compared to going to England at 15 and now I'm just a footballer and I don't the training that goes with that the, the the discipline, the the lifestyle, and the parental um, management that that comes with making sure that that happens properly and you survive in school. I think that's a very important process. I don't think it comes with being an apprentice in English football. We interviewed Niall Quinn on TV last year, uh, and we touched on some of these topics. He has a, a teenage son who's showing a lot of promise. And uh, we asked him, would you let him, the decision is coming pretty soon, he's a teenager, and whether or not he's going to let him go over to England at quite a young, at a young age. And Quinn said, no, I mean, I, I'm, he's going he's gonna to stay home, he's going to get his education, and then he'll go. And I, 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 and that's just what's going to happen. So there's an awkward conversation there for Niall to have with his son at some stage, but it, it made sense. He brought up the example of uh, Mignolet, Simon Mignolet, now the Liverpool goalkeeper, who arrived at Sunderland when Niall was still chairman there. And, and insisted insisted on on, on, on the, his, his first question before money before anything was uh, what, what what's the what, what's the educational structure within this club how do I get all my my qualifications etc which he just put down to a different mindset in, in say in Belgium as a country he, he and in Scandinavia generally yeah. I would say that's the case whereas and here most of it it's, it's understandable if you're 14, 15 you just want to get over and be a professional yeah it's also you know fo- football is very much a working class game and most of the, the kids that are the best players are, are still the ones that have a certain amount of street players we don't have many street players now anymore it's regimented organised training that you have to be delivered by your parents in the car whereas most players learn the game playing ball on the streets between the cars nowadays lads don't go training unless there's someone with a car to bring them right (laughs) so the the training times are very restricted and the practice so I don't think the quality of the technical players is as good as players were you know 10, 20, 30 years ago but um, I I, I think that the 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 nature of the game in Ireland and in Britain is that the players come from that that part of society where it, it, education is not always to the forefront of it. I think more and more people are. There are exceptions to that. I think where where that the balance is right on that, then you can you can trust that the player if he doesn't make it. You know, and the opportunities are becoming less and less because there's more players coming from everywhere else in the world towards the British Irish game. There's less opportunities, less spaces. There's less spaces in coaching now as well because every player thinks, "Well, I can be a coach now. I have my coaching badges. I'm 25. I have an A license." There are less and less opportunities for players to break into coaching. So they've got to have education to do other other things in life. And with the majority of Irish players. 
they they have a fair bit of that ability. They've a very they've a good grounding educationally. They also have to to deal with that trauma word I use again about adapting to living in England from such a young age. And then they have good a good family. Uh, back up when they come back and they can get back into education and there's a bit of football here for them and a lot of them even end up in the media for some reason. <laughs> Brian, listen, absolutely brilliant to have you in today. Thanks so much. It's been fascinating as always. Thanks a lot. It's a pleasure, on. blank look here on when Brian mentioned street footballers earlier on this again this is the cultural divide between the two of us you mm. growing up um, me growing up on the mean streets of Kimmacud yeah of course and, yeah. Uh, and you growing up I know I mean, I, mean the, I, I just presumed he misspoke he was just talking about field footballers what I can tell you there needs <laughs> there are there is something to be said for this street footballer mm. phenomenon which has died away over, over the years uh, according to a lot of people it teaches you pretty much all you need to know you need to be quick Mm-hmm. Uh, this is speaking from experience. Well, I, I, I wasn't quick, but you should be. Ideally, you should yep. be for when your left footed volley goes astray and breaks a window. Yeah, you need to be dexterous enough to fish the ball out from underneath parked cars with your foot without getting yep. too much oil on your tracksuit bottoms because your mum will go mad when you go home. Yeah, the oil uh, bitch. Yeah, she's like, look, the mud I can handle. Yeah. I don't know who's bleeding. Who's bleeding yeah. on you this week? I don't know, but oil, come on. Yeah. and most importantly, you toughen up mentally from repeatedly being denied certain goals by the ball cannoning off the curb. So it would be heading towards the, the goals, which are usually a driveway. Okay. The two pillars going into yeah. a driveway. Rolling in, no problem. Suddenly it hits the dreaded curb just in front, mm. loops up, and the last man back gets back in time to gather the ball safely uh, and, yeah. and leave the scores at nineteen seventeen. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. Yeah. It's like a cow wanders into the middle of a football game. That's what you think I grew up with, so I might as well just continue there. <laughs> in case anyone was confused by Brian's reference to his own laboratory experiments, I should clear that one up as well. Uh, we've talked to Brian in the past about his career pre-football mm. and what he was doing. Oh, well, I shouldn't say pre-football. <laughs> he was a football manager from the age of about six. Yeah. So along with his football managerial career, he also worked for many years as a lab technician in UCD. Mm. That's what he was referring to there. Uh, Dion Fanning is ready to chat about Harry Redknapp's departure from QPR. Dion, before we get to the man, let's talk a little bit about the club. I read a piece you wrote before Christmas about them. Uh, it seems you have quite an affinity for QPR. Yeah, I do. Well, they're 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 my local club here uh, in London, and um, I, you know, my my uncle was was a was a became a kind of late convert to QPR, and, and then became one of these sort of uh, very zealous late converts, where he used to go to every home and away game, reserve matches. I think maybe even like youth matches, like when he was, uh, you know, in his in his sixties. And he'd be on a bus full of you know twenty twenty year old QPR fans and and him uh, and he really and he was uh, it was always a club that I kind of had an affection for and then when I li- you know, when you live around here it's uh, it's got a great kind of there's a great kind of Irish connection to, uh, to QPR the old you know, the old uh, I suppose the, the Irish in London that people don't really talk about that much anymore the ones who came you know and ended up in Kilburn or Shepherd's Bush and places like this and QPR was kind of their club and if you go down to the ground and you're in the sand, there's a lot of those, those guys still going there. So it's a, a club that on that level is, is very easy to love on the kind of corporate and management level. It's, it's a very hard club to feel any affection for because especially, you know, the last few years going back, uh, you know, before Tony Fernandez, you know, I think a lot of people saw that documentary, the four year plan about them. Uh, they've all, they've, they've been, you know, run in, in such a, capricious capricious way that um that nothing really ever they 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 don't seem they're not a, they're not a club that anyone could you know a neutral could feel affectionate about actually most people kind of wish them when you look at the teams that are at the bottom of the table 
QPR, the team that no romantic would really think to <laughs> yeah. you go to Burnley or somewhere like that and say, I'd like they, them to survive. But QPR looked like they kind of get what they deserve. Well, another program Tony Fernandez was involved in, which I hadn't uh, hadn't heard about until I read one of your pieces, was called it was a BBC program, The Super Rich and Us. This sounds like a, a rather edifying piece of television. How did Fernandez come out of that one? Well, he you know he uh, he he showed what he was putting back into the community. He he could he, as he said he could be sitting on a massive yacht, which which would be useless to him except for his own personal satisfaction and occasional parties. Uh, but instead, he was he was at Loftus Road, where you know QPR, uh, you know the, the feelings, as he said, I think the quote was the feelings I can't describe. Now, uh, there's, there's a lot of people who've watched QPR. A lot of those, you know, aforementioned, uh, you know, old Irish guys who've, who've watched QPR over the last few years, who would also have feelings they can't describe uh, when watching uh, Junior Hoylet or Jose Basingua or Sean Wright Phillips. Um, and Fernandez has played his part in bringing those players to the club and played his part in the kind of mess they're in now since Redknapp resigned. Where does Redknapp's resignation fit into all that, Dion? Is, he, is it too simplistic to say that Redknapp is too much of an old-school throwback type of manager to uh, have succeeded in this kind of environment? Well, I think the problem is it's hard to know what kind of environment QPR were trying to promote. Like, they... they they now are talking about uh, developing players and uh, bringing players through. Now, Redknapp gave a quote at the start of the start of January, where he said the, uh, the the you know he understood there wouldn't be too many signings because because the club did their dough a few years ago, <laughs> uh, and uh, you know they did do do their dough, um, but you know Redknapp played his part in that too. But they really went for it. So now it's reinvent yourself and say this is what we're going to do. Uh, four or five months before the, you know, toward, at the, towards the end of a season where relegation, relegation is bad for anybody, but, but QPR, it's really perilous. Like they are like a kind of a fugitive uh, who can never go back to the kind of football league because they're the fines waiting for them, the p- p- penalties, prospective penalties from failing to meet financial fair play in the football league are huge. So it's not, you know, other clubs go down and they get parachute payments and that might help. QPR, uh, it's it's really 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 urgent that they don't they don't get relegated. So for Fernandez to kind of change that approach in the middle of it is is curious. Redknapp, I don't think it's Redknapp's. I don't think being an old school football man is a problem. I think again, simply uh, a lot of the signings. You know, you, you look you look at the signings Redknapp made. You know, he the, the, he had a, he was very very conveniently over the years over the time he's been there. He's been able to throw various players out out under the bus if if things were going bad, like Adel Tarap, Sean Wright Phillips recently, Basingua before that. And you know, he denied that the Tarap. Uh, he, he, he I was at the I was at the Villa game when he had a pop with a couple of journalists who had who who had uh, suggested that he he he'd brought Tarap out. To deflect attention from the fact that he was going to get get sacked, um, but there was this he, there was this huge body of players who you, you could you could only get sympathy from from the supporters by saying, "Well, look, I've got to deal with you know Basinga, Tarapt, all these guys." But he brought in you know, the signings he made. You look, know, he, he signed uh, Christopher Samba uh, for twelve million from from Anzi. I think an Anzi director said QPR were out of their minds to buy him. Uh, he arrived saying he was saying he was forty percent fit. He arrived in January when they're in a relegation battle, and he was sort of forty percent fit. And you'd have these very curious bulletins, sort of like in mid March, as QPR sliding down and you know reaching the reaching the end of the road. And you say Christopher Samba hopes to be fit soon. And you go well, he's going to be fit in time for them to be kind of confirm their relegation uh, this year. You know they signed Rio Ferdinand. Which was a, has been a disastrous signing. They started the season playing three at the back. Richard Dunn playing on the left side of three centre backs, which he really wasn't suited to. Ferdinand signing, you know, very. Why? I don't think anybody really thought Rio Ferdinand was the solution. Yet he he arrives in a in a in a classic you know Rio Ferdinand way. He he gets a number five shirt off Richard Dunn, who has 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 done a lot more for QPR before and since. Uh, Rio Ferdinand's arrival, yet everything is is top heavy like that. It's tilted towards these kind of uh, big name signings, which is not what the club needed. 
And Redknapp played his part in that, but it, it predates him too. There was an element of farce even to the end of it. The uh, transfer deadline day was a bit of a disaster for them, followed by the the announcement itself in that Redknapp saying that he, he had to get these knee operations over the next while. Uh, do, do you buy that in any way? Well, he does have a knee problem. Uh, he does, you know, he, he most of the, a lot of the time when they were in the championship, he, he I think he'd, he'd had knee surgery that summer, and he didn't do a lot of press conferences for a while because he couldn't get up the stairs at, at Loftus Road. So there is there is a knee issue. Uh, I don't think anyone. I think what people would like to know, you know, would 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 question is if QPR had signed the players he wanted to sign or signed anybody because Harry likes to sign people. Uh, would he have would his knee have been troubling him as much? And I think it was a sense the writing was on the wall. He knew it, it's kind of astonishing that he survived this long in one way or the other. You know, I was at the Man United game, and there was a general feeling then was that he was gone uh, the following week. And said Fernandez came out in the transfer window and said, "You know, we've got a, we've got everything we need here to get us out of trouble." Uh, I think the, the Les Ferdinand arrival, obviously. Put, put Redknapp's nose out of joint, um, you know, Ferdinand being placed in charge of, of transfers again, uh, was, which, was, which was, you know, which were no transfers. That was a signal that, you know, Harry wasn't going to get his way on this. Uh, so I think there were, it, it, it was, he was being pushed towards that. And I, I think at, at the end of, of deadline day, uh, his knees certainly would have been bothering him a lot more than if they'd signed uh, Adebayor or uh, Matt Jarvis or, or you know any of the any of the players Redknapp wanted to wanted to bring in. Yeah, fair enough. Listen, brilliant stuff, Dion. Thanks, a million. Cheers, on thanks. That article I referenced at the start that Dion wrote uh, in December, uh, he talked a little bit there about his uncle's love for the club. Uh, he had an old. Uh, there's also just a little vignette in the article that Dion's uncle had a, an old tape of a match between QPR and Newcastle. Mm. QPR came from four goals down to draw five all, and that tape got a hell of a lot of wear over the years. Mm. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I I don't know if it's if this is a widespread phenomenon, but I too had an uncle who supported uh, QPR. My uncle Mick. Uh, oh yeah, in, uh, in Clare, County Clare, yeah. So I thought he was more of a music a song well, and dance he is, man. He is, he's far much more a song and dance man. But when, pre- well, basically when he hears his wife, who's a complete Manchester United nut, talking, when that gets extremely boring for him, he does reference the fact that he is a QPR fan. But and I, it does date back to I think twelve or eighteen months spent in London in Kilburn. Well, it is interesting, yeah, that, uh, that, that there's still like, or there was that connection Kilburn and those old Irish areas. Yeah. I think that QPR is a, a, a club supported a little bit more in Ireland than, should, than should be the case for a club of that size. And uh, Dion just told us very eloquently why, why that was. Well, it turned out in the football podcast a few weeks ago, we found out that more Aston Villa jerseys are sold in Dublin than just about anywhere else. So yeah. nothing surprised me anymore. There could yeah. be more QPR or supporters than Man United supporters. You're in not alone, of the QPR country. fans. We've got another new podcast out. It features Shane Horgan and Eddie O'Sullivan dissecting the Irish team to play Italy and the Six Nations as a whole, plus US Murph's considered views on the Super Bowl. Check out our website, secondcaptains.com. Ken is back on Monday. In the meantime, thank you, Murph. Thank you, uh, Owen. And thanks very much for listening. We'll talk to you then. Whose phone is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 